All right, our teaching for tonight, uh, we're actually at the very end of our series in, uh, that we've been doing through, throughout all of the fall, uh, which we call Rules for Life, uh, The Way We Best Operate. And we're up to Jordan Peterson's ninth rule, a rule called, assume the person that you're listening to might know something that you don't. Difficult for a lot of us to do, and it's a prerequisite actually for actively listening. Assume the person that you're listening to might actually know something that you don't, and you could possibly even learn something from them, okay? So this is a rule in, we'll call it humility, especially humility in conversation. And so we're going to turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 7, which say the following, In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he might lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. This is God's word, and here are our three talking points for the evening. We're going to see the importance of listening to one another. We're going to see how God encourages us to lower ourselves. God's people are to lower themselves, not consider themselves more highly than they ought. And finally, we're going to see when you lower yourself, God will lift you up in due time. Okay, so listen, number one. Number two, lower yourself. Number three, let God lift you up. Uh, First of all, listen. It's probably worth reminding ourselves that Peterson is a clinical psychologist. In other words, he's not just an author of a New York Times bestselling book. He's not just a worldwide kind of famous speaker. Uh, He's a psychologist by trade. And he says he sometimes has to remind his listeners and even his colleagues that in psychotherapy, the goal of of psychotherapy is not simply to give professional advice. The goal in psychotherapy is to engage in genuine conversation with someone. And to engage in genuine genuine conversation with someone, it actually requires uh, that there is going to be some level of exploration, articulation, and strategizing. When you're involved in true conversation, there's both talking and listening, but the special emphasis is on listening. And that's very hard for a lot of us. Very hard. Uh, to give, let's say, an hour of your life to concentrate more and give more attention to somebody else's life than you are aware of your own life can be very, very difficult. And Peterson would also argue that most of us underestimate how important it is to talk in order to organize our thoughts, our feelings, and our brains. In other words, the way your brain is wired, it gets organized. We know this language-wise. It gets organized through conversation. And this is exactly the reason, for instance, why if somebody is left in solitary confinement for too long, inevitably and invariably, they will go insane. This is the reason why Tom Hanks has to talk to a volleyball Wilson on Castaway. And people think, you know, when he's talking to a volleyball, people think he's acting crazy. No, he's staving off going crazy. Because if the conversation only takes place in your head, that will drive you nuts. But when you externalize internal feelings through vocabulary, towards something or someone else, it helps you organize your thoughts and organize your brain. This is precisely the reason why little children often play make-believe and why somebody might have, a little girl might have a tea party with a bunch of stuffed animals and she has very robust conversation going on with these stuffed animals. Uh, Why? If she just enacts that drama in her own head, it does her no good. If she articulates it to other even inanimate objects through words, 
it takes the emotions and the thoughts going on in her brain and moves them from a state of chaos to a state of order because that's what verbalizing, that's what language, that's what conversation does. This is also a big part of the reason why, for instance, uh, almost every form of psychotherapy works. Almost every form works. This is, they're not all equally good, but if you say just in the 20th century, there's dozens of different forms of therapy that were introduced from Freudian to Adlerian to cognitive behavioral th therapy to uh, compassion-focused therapy and on and on and on. Guess what? They all work. They all work to some extent. Why? Because if you demonstrate genuine interest in an individual and you allow them to transparently share their concerns and they can do so without any fear of judgment, but you gently guide them back towards the objective truth, they tend to experience a great deal of relief in life. See, it doesn't matter so much what you say. It's that you simply compassionately listen to them. And that can bring some levels of healing in their life. You don't have to uh, know everything. You don't have to solve all their problems. You don't have to be the savior of their life. And you better not try to be the savior of, the, of their life. You just have to compassionately listen to human beings. And a great percentage of them will heal. Um, give you my own personal example of this. When I was maybe 21, 22 years old, this is the first time I came to a great sense of clarity on this. I went to, at that time, for the first time in my life, long overdue, uh, I desperately needed some like professional counseling. And uh, this was before I went away to grad school. It was during the summer. It was for maybe six or eight or maybe 10 weeks. And uh, I met once a week for about an hour with this woman, for discretionary sake, we'll say her name was Christy. She was pushing 60 years old, and the only reason I mention that is to say that we didn't have a whole lot in life in common. But every time we met, she listened to me very conscientiously, very compassionately. And at the end of about eight or 10 weeks, I ended up saying to Christy, I said, this is my, my, one of my goals in, in therapy is that this is no longer the best hour of every week for me. And... Uh, I said, I, I was about to get ready to go to school, and I was like, I, I really would like you to take you to school with me. And uh, I was in kind of a dark and hurting place. I'm not sure I wasn't asking her to marry me at that point, but uh, <laughs> she kind of deadpan looked at me and said, James, you can't afford me. And so uh, I was content to let that relationship end. But here's, here's my point. I was hurting, and I was so appreciative of someone who was competent, non-judgmental, and compassionately listened to me. And by that alone, she offered a great deal of healing in my life. And Jordan Peterson would say that's exactly how listening works. In fact, he would describe a number of his own client situations, and he'd say that just that third-party objective listening can bring healing. So, for instance, he would say, typically in my work, something like this might happen. And he gives an example. It could be a man or a woman, but the example he gives is, is a man that walks into counseling, one of his clients, and he, he's in a fit of frustration and rage in life. And he says, you know, and he just blurts out at one point, I hate my wife. And then Peterson sort of recoils and, and the guy sort of recoils a little bit because he's processing the gravity of what he just said. And he backs it up a little bit. And he's like, well, okay, sometimes, sometimes I hate my wife. Sometimes she... She just expects me to know exactly what she's thinking, exactly what she's feeling. 
And mom always used to do that with dad. He'll volunteer. Mom always thought dad should know exactly what she's feeling all the time, and it just drove dad nuts. And mom was nice, but sometimes she could get so passive-aggressive and so resentful and so manipulative. And then he'll say something like, you know, I guess my wife is a lot better at articulating what she's thinking and feeling than my mom actually is. And you go on like this, and an hour passes by, and the guy says, Dr. Peterson, that was a really good session. Thank you for all of that advice and all of that help. And here he is. You know, the guy that New York Times says is the most, influ most influential intellectual in the Western world, and he hardly said anything. He just compassionately listened to somebody for an hour, and they worked out a lot of those issues. That's how good listening can heal people. Now, Peterson would advocate for, uh, basically, it's a listening technique that was first uh, posed by somebody, a, a psychotherapist in the 20th century named Carl Rogers, uh, and it's Carl's, Carl Rogers' listening technique. We're, gonna, we're just going to call it summarizing because most of you have probably experienced this to some extent before. If you've gone through any kind of counseling before, you've definitely experienced this because you've maybe rambled on for like 20 minutes and then your counselor might pair it back to you. What I hear you saying is, and then they give you like two, three sentences and it summarizes everything that you just said, right? Now, that summarized type of listening is powerful because number one, anybody can do it. And number two, it accomplishes three important things. Uh, for starters, it clarifies that you understand what the other person's concerns are. So if you summarize what they said, and then that person will do one of two things. They'll either say, no, that's not at all what I meant. What I meant was this. Or they'll say, yes, that's exactly what I meant. In either case, it's very informative and it's very helpful. Okay. The second thing that that type of listening, summarizing, does is it uh, essentially condenses all of their complicated emotions. So like, if you can take the chaos that is surrounding their life and you can shrink it down into a manageable, digestible, summarizable, and recountable chunk, that's a memory. That's the purpose. Why, do humans, why did God give humans the ability to memorize? You know why? It is not at all to be able to accurately articulate what happened in the past. The whole purpose God gave you a memory is so that you're more capable of dealing with the future that's coming. And so for your memories to be concise, succinct, and easily explainable is very powerful. So when I can articulate back to somebody what they just explained to me, but I can do it in just a couple sentences, it takes this massive problem of chaos in their life and it shrinks it down into a paragraph. And all of a sudden, that big dragon that's threatening them is not nearly as terrifying. And they can memorize it, they can recount it, and they're better equipped to face the future as a result of that. The third thing that a summary of what somebody says is helpful for is it helps eliminate straw man arguments. You know what those are? It's when people have a summary of what's going on in life, but it's not actually accurate. It's just a figment that they've created in their minds. So I get this all the time, in my, even in my own personal counseling. When uh, somebody, usually it's when two or three people over the course of the last year or two, they'll use a phrase that's really popular, like in the media. And, um, you know, it could be any number of different things, but it was something that people were not telling me in counseling 10 years ago. But they're all saying it now. What that indicates to me is that they are saying something, they're hearing something, they're reading something, they're listening to something that's going on in society. And they're saying, yes, that resonates with my experience. And then they apply it to their life, whether it's accurate or not. So let me give you an example of what I'm talking about here. 
bullying is a topic that's a real topic that people talk about about 10, 20 times more today than people ever talked about. Some of you who are young don't realize this. 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, people were not talking about bullying all the time in society. Now, I'm not saying that's good or bad. All I'm saying is it's a thing. And therefore, sometimes I'll have to ask somebody when they're talking about bullying, and it could be, it could be a coworker, it could be a friend or family member, it could be uh, a spouse, it could be any number of different people. What I have to ask them sometimes is I have to say, okay, it sounds like you were the one that actually were a little bit more aggressive on that. It sounds like you're the one that instigated that. Does that fit the definition of bullying and what's going on? And then they have to back it off a little bit. See, but it's clarifying. Straw man arguments, by the way, this happens all the time. This is one of the reasons why we're so politically polarized today, because people are fighting against straw man arguments. So a good example of this would be, in the past two years, anytime I've listened to or been involved in any kind of conversation that talked about uh, something like critical race theory, really important topic, but it's one that brings about really visceral reactions. And so every time someone brings it up, I have to ask somebody, please clarify for me what you mean by that. You know, because I don't know exactly what they mean, and I don't want to react before I understand. And therefore, every time something like a straw man argument comes up, what you want to do is you want to say, okay, I have to listen. I have to listen carefully. I have to let them explain to me in their own terms what they mean. I have to summarize. I have to ask them to clarify before I have any kind of reaction. You don't, you don't need to knee-jerk react to anything that somebody brings up. In fact, you should actually reserve and refrain from reaction and help them clarify what it is that they're experiencing, okay? By the way, this is the power of your growth groups, and this is the power of your Christian friends. Because what goes on in your growth groups is it is a safe space where you can talk about stuff and open up about stuff without any fear of judgment with people who are already predisposed to saying, okay, what we agree upon is that the Bible is the foundational, inerrant, inspired word of God. And so everything on top of that can fluctuate. Every, all our applications, all of the surface level kinds of conversations, they might change, they might evolve, they might transform. I might transform, and that's actually really good. I need to transform because I'm wrong about life in some ways. That's why I fail at life in some ways, because I'm wrong. We got to humble ourselves. The purpose of, see, in counseling, the purpose of talking is so that you can speak in a way that allows your brain to go from a place of chaos to a place of order. But in open conversations, you're actually inviting some chaos in. You're saying, you know what? I don't have everything figured out already. Uh, And I'm not perfect and I don't understand it. So long as you and I both agree that the Bible is the inspired and errant word of God, I'm going to allow myself to continuously be influenced even by things that other of God's people say to me to shape my perception of the world. See? If we have open conversations that are built on the foundation of God's word, it creates the necessary chaos to lead people to repentance over wrong thinking. And you need to do that because of us, many of us are rigid about too many things that we shouldn't be. We think every relationship should look like this. Every marriage should look exactly like this. Every parenting style should look exactly like this. Every church should look exactly like this. No, it shouldn't. If God didn't say it has to look like that, then I need to become less rigid. I need to introduce the chaos of Christian conversation into my thinking and be shaped by what I learned from other believers too. And uh, Jordan Peterson, I think, would put it sort of like this. 
Uh, he would talk about the motivation for humbling listening and say, you already know what you know, after all, and your life, uh, unless your life is perfect, what you know right now is not enough. You remain threatened by disease and self-deception and unhappiness and malevolence and betrayal and corruption and pain and limitation. You are subject to all of these things in the final analysis because you are just too ignorant to protect yourself. He's calling us out. But he's right. Do you have any problems in your life? What that must mean is you and I don't know everything. We don't understand everything. Do we have enough humility to admit that? If you just knew enough, you could be healthier and more honest. You would suffer less. You could recognize, resist, and even triumph over malevolence and evil. You would neither betray a friend nor deal falsely and deceitfully in business, politics, or love. However, your current knowledge has neither made you perfect nor kept you safe. So it is insufficient by definition, radically, fatally insufficient. You know what that is? That's a recall to repentance over arrogance. That's a recall to repentance over thinking that you know how everything in life is supposed to work. Very often in counseling, for me, it'll go something like this. Uh, somebody will tell me how miserable they are in life. Then I will ask them for their philosophy of life. And then I will say, and how is that working out for you right now? See, we have to humble ourselves from being too rigid about the way we think we know life is supposed to go and humble ourselves before God and let him care for things that we can't take control of. That brings us to our second point. Peterson's point is great. Uh, the Bible's point is even better. The next two points are lower yourself and let God lift you up. Okay, lower yourself. Look in this text. Look how many times it actively says that you should lower yourself down in your own mind and before the world, and especially before God. Submit yourselves, clothe yourselves with humility, humble yourselves, and cast all your anxiety on him. God's people need to be reminded, spiritually speaking, that for God's people, humiliation always comes before exaltation. Crucifixion of the flesh always becomes before the resurrection. This is true, by the way. This is the pattern of Jesus Christ, and he's perfect. So how much more shouldn't this be the pattern for God's people, fallen people? Look at any leader in the Bible. Look at Moses. Before Moses is equipped to lead people, he should go out in the desert for 40 years and humble himself and get eviscerated of any pride before he's qualified at 80 years old to go and deliver God's people from slavery in Egypt. Look at Joseph, elevated to the throne. Only after he was humbled down to the ground for 13 straight years in Egypt. It wasn't until he was lowered that he was able to be lifted up by God and used for God's kingdom. That is always the way God works. It's always death first, then life. And for God's people, that's how the gospel works. I need to repent of my sins. I need to repent of myself and allow God's grace to then heal me and lift me up. Which, by the way, the modern world hates that idea. Modern world hates the idea of sin to the degree that the modern the culture around outside of church walls and almost nobody talks about like sin because we're offended by that concept for two different reasons. And on Reformation weekend, it's important to understand the two different reasons why we're offended by that. Number one, we're offended because we think the concept of sin is old fashioned. It's oppressive. It's repressive and it's insulting. Why wouldn't God just love me exactly the way that I am? Because I'm mostly awesome anyways, right? Well, 
okay, so we reject it because we don't believe in that concept of sin. Or sometimes people reject the concept of grace. Why? Because they don't think grace is good enough. Yeah, I know I'm not perfect, but if I, if I believe the right things and I say the right prayers and I make the right sacrifices, then maybe then I can earn my place before God and God will accept me. Both of those are very contemporary thoughts that are rejections of the concept of grace alone. The first one is what you call irreligion. The second one is what you call traditional religion. The first one is a rejection saying, I'm not that bad. The second one is a rejection saying, grace really isn't that good. I'm not that bad. I can take care of myself. I don't need God's sacrifice. I'm, you know, not perfect, but grace isn't big enough to save me. I'm going to be saved through some kind of obedience and some kind of deeds and good works and whatever else. And it's all, it's all pride. It's two different things. They look very different. They would never categorize themselves together. It's the same pride. And pride is the number one thing more than anything else in the world that causes you to not listen to what somebody else has to say. And for that matter, not listen to what God has to say to you through his inspired word. Um, the solution, of course, to pride is humility. Emptying yourself of yourself, emptying yourself of your pride, repenting, in other words. And our text says, you know, you have to do that actively. You have to consciously, actively lower yourself. In other words, humility is not a state that you will just naturally, organically arrive in. It has to consciously be worked into you. You have to own your weaknesses. You have to own your mistakes. You have to repent actively of all of that. Again, look at the words, clothe yourselves with humility, submit yourselves before the Lord, humble yourself before God's people and before God. You cannot passively enter into that state. You have to consciously actively do that. How, now, what does that look like? Let me give you just, a, I think a simple example and it'll maybe make some sense. Uh, let's say you have somebody that you work with that irritates you a tremendous amount. I know it's a weird hypothetical that none of you can relate to, but let's say somebody really irritating that you work with, okay? Why are you so irritated by them? Maybe you're irritated because they have something in their life that you think you deserve and you want. They got a promotion, they got a title, they got a raise, they got that office, and you think you deserve that. What are you going to do about that? What if you applied the gospel to your life right now? Why are you so obsessed with that thing that they got? Is it because you think you need that thing to perceive yourself as a valuable, worthwhile, acceptable person? You've forgotten the gospel. And what does the gospel say? That through the blood of Jesus Christ, I am a redeemed, righteous child of God that will rule like a king and queen over all creation for all eternity. The best thing that I could ever possibly be is a righteous child of God that's already been gifted to me, that's already been secured. No one can take that away from me. I don't lack anything. I don't need anything else in my life to be content with where I'm at right now. See, the problem is you and I forgot the gospel. Or why else are you irritated? Maybe you're irritated because that person's just kind of annoying. And you're like, okay, well, what am I supposed to do with that? Well, if you apply the gospel to that situation, what do you do? Say, okay, when God looks at me, what does he see? When Jesus looks at me, does he see that I repeatedly make some of the same mistakes? Does he see that I have so many petty worldly concerns? Does he see that uh, I have such shallow and unjust criticisms over everybody else around me? Does Jesus have any grounds to hold any of that kind of stuff against me? Yeah, I think he probably could, but he doesn't. 
He doesn't because he's so gracious. He just is patient and he forgives me again and again. And he keeps nudging me back in the right direction. And we could go on and on like this, but you get my point. Do you, do you, do you and I have a right to be irritated really about anybody in our lives? Let me put it a slightly different way. When you and I get irritated by people in life, what are you going to do about that? Are you going to control and change all of the irritating people on planet Earth? Or would it be more productive to apply the gospel to your own life and work the grace of God into your relationships, into your conflict resolution, into your daily irritations? That's much more godly and much more helpful. Um, Aid and I were recently studying through the book of 2 Samuel in the Bible. And it just struck me more clearly than ever before uh, when I got to 2 Samuel 11 and 12, which are famous chapters. Uh, 11 is the story of David and Bathsheba. Uh, 12 is the story of God sending the prophet Nathan to confront David because he hasn't repented of his sins. And so in 11, what you have is David's adultery with Bathsheba, his murder of Uriah, her husband, and a bunch of other guys too. His deceit and lies to cover all of that up. And he's content to go for months without repenting of any of that. And then in chapter 12, you know what you get? The prophet Nathan comes to David and he calls him to repentance, but he doesn't just do it directly. Instead, he tells him a story. And he says, look, there's a rich man who owns lots of flocks and lots of cattle. And he lives next door to a poor man who only owns one lamb that he dearly loves. But the rich man is throwing a big party. And so he's going to invite all of his friends over uh, but he's going to take, he's going to steal the poor man's lamb, slaughter it, and make a meal for them. You know how David reacts to all that? He is incensed. He thinks, how unjust, how unfair, how terrible that is. That's capital, capital crime. He deserves to die for that kind of injustice. And what does Nathan say to him? David, you idiot, I'm talking about you. What's the point of that text? You and I... Pride leads us to always be so much more offended by everybody else's sins than we are offended by our own. You and I are exaggeratedly aware of how irritating, how arrogant, and how selfish everybody else in the world is. And we are grossly unaware to the degree that we're guilty of each of those things ourselves. And so what Peter says is, yeah, you should probably humble yourself so you see this more clearly. Humble yourself so God can lift you up. Remind yourself daily how desperately you need the grace of God and how earnestly God longs to give you that exact grace. But pride is the only thing that can stand in the way of him getting it to you. Uh, if you humble yourselves, you're going to listen to other people much better. And for that matter, if you humble yourself, other people will want you to listen to that. You're going to become more accessible because people aren't going to be afraid of you being so judgy. Another thing that humility does is it actually makes you less anxious. And this is something that I, I haven't found a lot of Christians that can articulate it. And I couldn't for many years either, but I think I understand it now. When I used to struggle with anxiety a lot, what people would tell me to be is more confident. Now that's helpful to some extent. What nobody ever told me to do was to humble myself. But that's exactly what this text is saying. You know why that's so helpful? Because you know why you get so anxious? You think you know exactly the way that your life is supposed to go. And you think that you're somehow able to influence the world in such a way that you're going to make it go exactly that way. And when you see that not happening, you start to fall apart. If you would just humble yourself, 
If you would say, you know what, I'm actually pretty small in this giant universe, and my problems are, believe it or not, actually much bigger than I am, but I'm going to be okay because I have a God who dearly loves me, who's much bigger than all the problems of the world combined. And if he's looking out for me, I can rest. I can let go if and only if I realize that God is taking care. So if I humble myself, my anxiety will start to go away. Yeah. Brings us to our final point. So let God lift you up then. Once you humble yourself, see what it says very specifically. The text says, God opposes the proud, but he shows favor. That literally it says he shows grace to the humble. Humble yourself before God's mighty hand and he will lift you up in due time when he knows it's right. Cast your anxiety on him and he will take care of you. Remember who's writing this? It's a guy named Peter. Peter's the one who's telling us to be humble. Remember, this is the same Peter. Let me just remind you real quick who was so full of himself the night before Jesus was crucified that he says to Jesus, look, if everybody in the whole world turns away from you, I will not turn from you. And then a couple short hours later, this guy is so anxious that standing out in the courtyard just outside Jesus' trial, he denies his Savior three times in a row. This is Peter coming back after taking some of this medicine and saying, look, why don't you learn from my mistakes? Uh, this is Peter, much more mature, who's been forgiven for his arrogance, who's seen a resurrected Lord, who's been reinstated to ministry, and he's now explaining, yeah, if I would have just humbled myself, if you humble yourself now, God will take care of you. God will lift you up. Peter knew that God's going to take care of you full well. Remember, not just in general, and this is important for you to do too, God's track record of goodness and righteousness to you, undeserved. Make sure you list those things in your life regularly. Peter wasn't just shown miracles in general. Peter was shown specific miracles to himself. Remember, Peter's mother-in-law was cured from a fatal disease on her deathbed. Peter was given a miraculous catch of fish. Peter had the temple tax paid for him through a miracle by Jesus. Peter was able to walk on water at one point. Peter had, when he cut off the high priest's servant, uh, Melchus's ear, Jesus picked it up and reattached it to his head. And what that means is even the mistakes that you made, God can undo that. God can rewind that and work it out for good. And at this point, Peter had even been miraculously released from prison. Peter knew full well that God will take care of you if you simply just humble yourself. And so what this is, is he's saying, learn from my mistakes. I was a young, arrogant, anxious fool who thought he knew exactly how his life was supposed to go. But God humbled me, and I'm thankful for it because I'm more humble, I'm more confident, and I'm more joyful in Jesus Christ today. And what about you? God will let God take care of the miracles part. But I do want to say, if you humble yourself before God, I guarantee you for every Christian, God will do these five things. If you humble yourself before God, God will give you the courage to face your concerns honestly, transparently, not run away from them, not self-medicate them, not deny them, not repress them, but walk towards the monster that's in front of you in your life and keep heading towards it because you're not facing it alone. Face those fears, face those obstacles, face those monsters and trust Jesus is bigger. If you understand he's with you, you'll have the courage to face those things in life and not live in denial. Number two, I guarantee if you humble yourself before the Lord, Jesus will give you the wisdom to discern a very complicated world when we don't know exactly what to do and what to, how to make right decisions. Don't worry about it. He'll give you wisdom. Number three, Jesus will give you the strength to do what is right, to do his will. 
One of the most abused passages in scripture is that famous one that says, it's Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through God who gives me strength. And people use that to say things like, I can do anything that I put my mind to and stuff like that. No, I don't, I don't know that that's true. What is true is God will give you the strength to do his will. I guarantee that. Number four, he will give you the faith to trust that if you just do his will, he'll take care of all the rest for you. And number five, he also promises to give you his church. And what his church is, is a group of people who will listen to all of your concerns, show you compassion, show you non-judgment, and that alone will bring a great deal of healing into your life. That alone will make life doable because life is really hard. Life is characterized by suffering. But when you have to suffer alone, that's hell. You don't have to suffer alone. You share what you're suffering with, with God's people. They'll listen, they'll commiserate, and that will be part of God's healing in your life, okay? Um, the only thing that can stand in your way of this grace is pride. So humble yourself before the Lord. If you humble yourself before the Lord, not only will God's grace flow into your life, but God will use you as a conduit by which he flows his grace into the lives of other people. And so let me just close like this. Uh, you know... The Bible says we love because he first loved us. The extrapolations of that are tremendous. We humble ourselves because he first humbles his, himself for us. We listen compassionately to other because he first listened to our cries for mercy as well. Jesus humbled himself by taking on human flesh. Jesus humbled himself by coming into this world, not to condemn the world with his words, but to listen to us and save the world. He, Jesus humbled himself by allowing himself torture and even death and death on a cross for all of our sins. Jesus humbled himself by totally listening and submitting to his heavenly father's will. But because he humbled himself, he forgave us of every last sin of pride and he saved us. Because he humbled himself, guess what? He is the most important person in human history. It's the exact opposite way than we think to go. He lowered himself and his name gets lifted up in praise throughout all history moving forward. And in that, he's even presented to us something of a model. Because Jesus humbled himself, it means for us that if and when we humble ourselves, just like he listened to cries, just like he loved those who were lost and hurting, and he saved the world, God wants to work through you and me too, that when we humble ourselves and we listen to the cries of the people around us and we love those who are lost and hurting around us, not only will we grow, but God will bring his therapeutic healing into the world through us too. Let's close with prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for listening to our fears, our doubts, and our cries for mercy, and then nailing all of that to the cross. We are free, and we move forward in confidence. Let us now care enough to listen to other hurting souls to bring your healing into their lives as well and may it glorify your name. Amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.